Good morning. Well, thanks to uh, Colleen Bellis who searched out this song. I mentioned last week I couldn't find the music for it, but I uh, didn't intend to start somebody else looking. But thank you for that, Colleen. Thank you, everyone, for singing so nicely. Uh, if you would turn, please, to Luke chapter 2. We'll continue where we've been. And uh, it, it comes to my mind. This is uh, the third message I'm preaching that there's a common theme to the messages, and that is the revelation of Christ, the revelation of the Messiah. We started with, with that happening through Zechariah, and really God revealing to Zechariah and Elizabeth about John the Baptist, who was going to be the person who comes before Jesus and introduces the nations to the Messiah. And then last week we looked at uh, the angels singing, so to speak, as we sang, on the day the Lord Jesus was born. And then the shepherds revealing him to Bethlehem. Well, today God, we'll see God is continuing with the revelation of his son. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about it, well, it might be a common theme that runs through the entire gospel. Because that's really the purpose of the gospel. It's introduced us to the person of the Lord Jesus. So it's not surprising that we see that theme in this passage as well. But hopefully we will see some new ways in which the Lord is revealing himself or God is revealing Jesus as the Messiah. If you would, uh, okay, so we, we turn to chapter 2. Let me start reading where we left last time, verse 21. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will also pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Panuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. 
And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And the Lord blessed the reading of his word. We start here with a scene that perhaps is unfamiliar to, bo- to most of us. In fact, really to all of us, even if you're a Jew, these were customs that were not, haven't been kept even by Jews for the last 2,000 years. Once the temple was destroyed, they couldn't continue to do uh, some of these customs, I should say. One of them, the first one we see in verse 21, the circumcision is being practiced today. But uh, the rest being presenting Jesus or the baby or I should say a firstborn son before the Lord in the temple, you can't do anymore because the temple is no longer there, right? And uh, also the sacrifice. There was a sacrifice that Mary brought associated with her purification from uh, the process of labor that uh, cannot happen today. She offered sacrifice. But uh, I thought it's good for us to stop and think a little bit about these customs that were practiced at the time. And if possible, let's do it in the context of what chapter 1 and verse 17 tells us, chapter 1 and verse 17 says, talking about John the Baptist, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I don't think we touched about that word there. It, it says John's to go and he is to make them ready, but there are people, people prepared for the Lord. They have already been prepared for him. Now, we could think about what does it mean that they've prepared, been prepared for the Lord? Well, you could say among other things, he's chosen them, right? He set them apart. He called Abraham and out of Abraham in Egypt, he, he made a nation unto himself and he brought them out and he gave them his law. So he prepared them for himself. He set them apart, if you would, from the other nations. Well, okay. You could also say he prepared them with prophecies. He told them that the Messiah was coming. So Jesus was coming to a nation who should have been prepared. And we actually see they are prepared in that sense. They've they've been expecting the Messiah. They seem to have some wrong ideas about what the Messiah will be and what he will do. But they're prepared in the sense that, yes, they understand God has made promises to us. He will send us the Messiah. Um, We could think about... Let me turn to another verse, and actually you don't have to turn there, I have it here, so I'll just read it to you. It says this in Galatians. But before faith came, this is Galatians 3, but before faith came, we were kept under God by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So it uses the law there in a picture, first as a God, someone who's guarding them, and then as a guide or as a tutor, someone who's guiding them to Christ. And there's two ways in which we typically think of the law as acting in that way, as guiding us to Christ. One is God uses the law to reveal that we're sinners. Uh, it says that in Romans, he's given, he's given to us the law to show us that all of us have sinned. We try to keep the law and we fail. 
and it shows us that we're sinners. We need Christ. So that's one way in which the law guides us to Christ. The way which is in this passage is different. Does it not, does, does often we say that the law contains two elements. It contains a moral element, commandments such as do not lie, do not steal, do not murder. And it contains a ceremonial element, which is what you see is being practiced in this passage. The, they're practicing certain ceremonies that God has prescribed to them. And uh, those ceremonies, too, were designed to guide them to Christ. And let's, so let's look at these things that they were doing and think how they might have been used by God to guide them to Christ. Now, a lot of these things may not be as obvious to them at this time because they don't fully understand who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do. But you could almost see God putting certain pieces together in their mind, that when Christ comes, these pieces will come together and they'll all fit. And they'll realize this is the one that God sent for us. Remember, these are people prepared for the Lord. It's important that they will recognize him when he comes. And in these ceremonial laws, there's these pieces that God is putting together that are designed to guide them to him. And uh, the first one is the circumcision. Uh, Most of you know what circumcision means, and I have no desire to go into the physical details of it, but it was given at a particular, in a particular way to the nation. It actually was given through Abraham. And God told Abraham, I want you to circumcise your children or your sons as a covenant in the flesh, a sign that I will fulfill my promises to you. So every time they circumcise a son, it should have been a reminder that God has made a promise to them. And uh, we won't go, th- go through all the promises, but generally it was a promise to bless them, to bless Abraham to bless, bless Abraham's seed, but also the one that they probably understood the least, that through Abraham and through Abraham's seed, the whole world will be blessed. And we'll, we see that's really what Christ came. He came through the Jewish people, but to bless all the nations. So that's a piece that should fit when everything comes together. Uh, the next one here is uh, the presentation of Christ to at the temple. They, it said in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So they were here to bring him and basically kind of offer him to God and say, God, we recognize that he belongs to you. And again, the important thing is the context. Where did that come from? Why were they offering? And this is just the firstborn son. The firstborn son they were supposed to offer to the Lord. Why? Well, it goes back all the way to Egypt. And God saving Israel from slavery in Egypt and the final, uh, the, the way God saved them out of slavery in Egypt is he brought plagues upon Egypt. Moses came. Uh, God sent Moses, and he told Pharaoh, let my people go. And when Pharaoh wouldn't let them go, God started to strike them with judgment. And this, the final strike, the final judgment on Israel, that caused Israel to finally let them go, and indeed, like, try to hurry Israel out, was the, the judgment or the plague or the strike of the firstborn. And God uh, told them that uh, the firstborn in all the land of Egypt will die. The firstborn of every uh, child or firstborn of every family and the firstborn of every even animal would die. Firstborn male. The problem is this judgment was now upon Israel as well. God decreed it would be over the entire land of Egypt. And so God created a special way for Israel to be saved. And that way was to take a lamb and to kill the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and smear it on the doorposts 
And then if you want to be safe, you're a firstborn, you go inside that house and you eat the Passover lamb. And then God said, and when, when uh, I go, the angel of destruction goes through the land, I will see the blood and I will pass over you. That's why it's called the Passover. God passed over whoever was in that house, whoever was protected by the blood. There's probably not a better picture in the Old Testament of Christ. We're, we're protected by his blood. The shed blood of Christ protects us from the judgment of God. He passes over us. So again, a picture that God has prepared for them. Um, the next one we see is the offering of the pair of turtle doves in verse 24. Why is she offering the pair of turtle doves? Well, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, God prescribed certain things she was supposed to do after she bore her child. And this would be for every child that she bore, she would be considered ceremoniously unclean. Um, the term ceremoniously unclean may not be so familiar for us today, but for the Jews, certain things that they did excluded them from being able to go to the temple or join in certain ceremonies or even be part of the congregation. Now, there was nothing wrong that they did. Mary didn't do anything wrong by giving birth to Christ. But there was a picture that God was preparing, and, and generally speaking, what made you unclean is when anything came out of your body. Okay, that made you unclean. In this case, she gave birth, and there's, there's other things that come out at that time, and that made her ceremoniously unclean. Why? Why is God telling them? Wouldn't this be so confusing, telling them that they're unclean because they did something? Well, there was a picture, though. There was a picture there, and probably the best explanation for that picture is given by Jesus himself. I'll just read it again in Matthew 15. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. This was in response to some confusion that uh, the scribes and the, the religious people had at the time about needing to wash in so many ways before they ate food. And Jesus cleared it up and said, no, what defiles a man is what comes out of the man. And what, what comes out of a man is sin. And so there's a picture here. When something was coming out of a person, God was giving them a picture of how how much sin offends him. And so when something came out of them, they were unclean and they had to do something to cleanse themselves. And they think they had to do, in this case, it says Mary brought a pair of turtle doves. Actually, ideally, she should have brought a lamb and a turtle dove and offered the lamb as a burnt offering and the turtle dove as a sin offering. And that would make her clean. And uh, again, God is giving here a picture of his son. The one thing that can take away our sins is Christ. Uh, let me just read this for you out of Hebrews. Not to be confused, we can't, you can't go and offer the blood of lamb. You can't go and offer the blood of turtle doves and hope that that somehow cleanses you in the sight of God. God is very clear about it. Hebrews chapter 10, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, Make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats 
could take away sin. So there is a reminder, all these sacrifices, and these are things everybody would have to do multiple times a year if they wanted to keep with the law, was a reminder of the sin and how much the sin offended God and the fact there was one solution that God has made for the sin. All of this would hopefully click together as the Messiah is being revealed to the nation of Israel. It's neat in my mind, if you think about it, there's no command. God is is about to reveal Christ in the temple. I mentioned uh, last week how it seems kind of strange that the angels get sent to a bunch of shepherds on a hillside in Bethlehem. Why not reveal the Messiah in the temple in Jerusalem in broad daylight so everybody can hear? Well, this is what God is actually doing here. And the way God brought it about was a simple obedience to this law. Mary and Joseph are simply keeping what God said. And part of it, they had to bring their firstborn son and offer him to the Lord. And that's the moment that God will use to reveal, to declare the fact that the Messiah has arrived to Israel. So it's neat how God is working all these things together. Okay, uh, now comes Simeon. And we have that for us in verses 25 through 35 of this section. Simeon is the main person God will be using here, at least to declare, declare the arrival of the Messiah. And I mentioned how last time it was angels. In this case, it's not an angel, it's a man. And there's a verse about that that comes to mind in the Second Corinthians. I'll just read it again. Chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And what Paul is talking about there is the privilege of having the gospel. Paul is a, is a minister of the gospel and he gets to share the gospel and he's describing here as a treasure but a treasure that is in earthen vessels, or if you would, jars of clay. That's that's all we are, and yet God puts this treasure. You wouldn't expect a treasure to go into jars of clay. You have a nice treasure chest for it. Not in this case. God likes to put the gospel in us. And this treasure referred to is the knowledge of the glory of God. It was put into Paul and into us so we can share it with others. And he gives a reason here that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. If God would have used angels, it wouldn't have been as obvious. You might give the angels some credit in the salvation of people. But when it's just us, jars of clay, you have to give the credit to God. So this is the opportunity that those who are going to the uh, mission field, like the market, uh, like the farmer's market, you have an opportunity to glorify God more than angels can. Because you're just a jar of clay. And so when people get saved, when people give glory to God as a result, it comes from the power of God, not from your power. And that's why God is using this man here, Simeon, instead of angels singing in the sky. It's an opportunity that God will get the greater glory from what happens. Let's look a little bit at this treasure here that uh, Simeon shares. And I say treasure, what Simeon had to share was a very small fraction of what we can share with people. The amount of glory of God, the amount of knowledge of God he could reveal is far less than what we can reveal today. But there is still a lot of glory here. First, we have here, he says, in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace 
according to your word. I don't know if you've uh, seen books in stores. This day we don't go to bookstores. They've all been closed down because they can't compete with Amazon and uh, other online sellers. But if you did, or maybe you see advertisements, you might see books that say a thousand things you have to do before you die or uh, a thousand places you have to go before you die. There's this feeling that we might miss out on life if we don't do something or don't go somewhere. <clears throat> and what Simeon is telling you, there's one thing you need to do before you die. And uh, that is see the Lord. He, he saw the Lord. Meeting the Lord Jesus will be enough to satisfy you. And not just satisfy you for this life, satisfy you for eternity, as we've been singing. <clears throat> the next thing he says is, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which, is, which you have prepared before the face of all people. He's saying that God prepared his salvation before all people. It wasn't something that done in a secret place. Um, I've had occasion when uh, witnessing to speak with uh, people from different religions, and uh, I've had occasion to speak with Muslims, and Muslims will actually accept, if you start talking to them about Jesus at first, they wouldn't be so upset about it because they actually believe Jesus is a prophet. In fact, they believe he is one of the seven great prophets. Of course, they believe Muhammad was a greater prophet. But there's some things that they will argue with and deny has happened. First, they'll deny, of course, that Jesus is the Son of God. But another thing that they interestingly deny, you wouldn't expect it uh, immediately, is they deny he was crucified. They claim that Jesus was never crucified. And the reason they say that they say it is crucifixion was such a gruesome, shameful death. They said there is no way God would allow one of his prophets, one of his top seven prophets, to suffer and be shamed in such a way in public. Which makes sense, right? If we had someone we really loved and we had control over all things, we wouldn't want them to get hurt. We wouldn't want them to be shamed. And yet the Bible tells us that God has set him forth crucified. And he wasn't crucified in some hidden place. He was crucified within sight of Jerusalem's wall. And he was crucified on a day every Jew should have been in Jerusalem, maybe walking by that road, which was next to the cross, being able to see him. Why has God set him forth in this painful, uh, shameful moment? Well, because God didn't want you to miss his salvation. It was so important to God that you know about the salvation he has prepared for you. He was willing to display his son in his greatest moment of agony, in his greatest, greatest moment of shame, so that you would know about the salvation that God has prepared for you and for me. <clears throat> the next thought that uh, Simeon shares with us is that he will be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. I'm often amazed with how much these prophets sometimes know. Uh, Israel was not expecting that the Messiah would do any good to the Gentiles, or not a lot of good. They thought the Messiah was going to come, he was going to raise Israel up, help them defeat the Roman Empire, and reign over the entire world with Israel on the top. Basically, they wanted to replace Rome with Jerusalem. They, They had no problem with ruling over people and and getting stuff out of people, but they wanted themselves to be on top not the Romans. They didn't have a a good conception of what Christ was really going to do. And what 
what Simeon is telling us here is God's plan of salvation was way beyond what the Jews were imagining. Now, he revealed it to them, but they still had a hard time conceiving it. Uh, you could go all the way back to Isaiah. This is 700 years before Christ was born. And Isaiah says this, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing for me that you shall be a servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved one of Israel. I will also give you as a lie to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God wasn't satisfied with just saving Israel. It wasn't a big enough prize for his son. He wanted to save the whole world. The next, <clears throat> the next part of this prophecy, verse 32, and the glory of your people Israel, is the one part of this prophecy. He says here so many things that are so insightful, that are such a great evidence that this is God, the Holy Spirit speaking. There's one thing he said that has not yet come to pass. And that's a t statement. You will be the glory of your people, Israel. It was God's desire that Israel will be fulfilled with Christ. There is nothing else for them. Often we think, well, Jews are, you know, they're God's chosen people. You know, they have the Old Testament. They have, they have enough blessings. Or, well, you know, God will save them anyway somehow because they're Jews. No, without Christ, they have nothing. Christ is God's glory for them. And to this day, they have rejected him. Now, I shouldn't say day. Uh, <laughs> some of you know I'm from a Jewish background. Two, God has still saved a remnant. There's still a remnant of believing Jews. But the nation as a whole has rejected him. And uh, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago. He stepped out conveniently to, to him. Do I think when Christ comes the second time, will Israel receive him? And it seems like a reasonable question. Well, they rejected him the first time. Well, the problem is God has promised in so many places that he will fulfill this picture. He will be their glory. This isn't something that God was hoping. It's a prophecy as sure as all these other prophecies have been fulfilled. One day Israel will look at him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. It will come to pass. And they will find in him that fulfillment that reality that God always had in mind. Next we see <coughs> next we see Simeon turning to Joseph and his mother in verse 33 through 35. It says, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And it's good to remember that even though Mary and Joseph are Jesus' parents, they're in the fog about a lot of these things as well. And uh, God is concerned for them, I think especially for Mary. I, I, I have the sense that Joseph departed before Jesus came to maturity and uh, was proclaimed as the Messiah, was baptized by John the Baptist and started his ministry. So in some sense, it may not have been quite as crucial for Joseph to know about this. Maybe more crucial for Mary, which is why it, why it says he is talking to Mary. Uh, but probably for Joseph too. They had certain ideas in their mind of what the Messiah would do. 
They expected that uh, he will be received by his people. He will probably uh, lead his people to victory against Rome. He would reign in Jerusalem, and they would be his mom and dad. I mean, that's, that's a pretty rosy picture. And that wasn't going to happen. And God is preparing him, he's preparing them, and especially Mary, for that reality. <clears throat> As he says in verse 35, yes, a sword will pierce your own through your own soul also. It's not going to be a happy experience being the mother of the Messiah because he will be a suffering Messiah and she will suffer with him in the sense of a mother seeing her child suffer. Uh, but the first part is in verse 34. It says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. So it's not what they thought would happen. It's not like Israel will be raised up the Gentiles will be pushed down. It's like, no, there'll be a lot of falling down within Israel too. And no doubt he's thinking of the religious leaders, the ones who were the top in Israel, the ones everybody looked up to. These are the priests. These are the Pharisees, the scribes, the experts of the law, the religious people. These people are going to be mostly brought down. And it's actually going to be the lowly people like Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and John, uh, Simeon, and Anna here that will be raised up, that will be exalted, not in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of the truly spiritual community. <clears throat> a sign that will be spoken against, they will reject him. He will come and offer them his salvation, and they will want nothing to do with it. And it gives an explanation of it in verse 35. It says that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. <clears throat> the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed you don't know what I'm thinking. Or you might, because I'm talking right now, so it's hard for me to separate my thoughts from what's going on inside my heart. But a person can profess, profess great love to God. Uh, the Pharisees, it says, were making long prayers. They were fasting twice a week. In all appearances, they were very spiritual. They were people who really loved God. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, I know you, that the love of God is not in you. There was no reality. There was profession. They liked people thinking how spiritual they were. But inside, there was no truth to it. There was no love for God in their heart. And Christ came to stop that. Christ came to have a genuine relationship with people, not to accept people who made these professions. And so they had to fall. They couldn't. Once Christ came, and really, not just, just then, but always, God desires a sincere relationship with people. He's not interested in you pretending to be spiritual, in you telling people how much you love him. He's interested in the truth that is in your heart. And because these people did not have that real love for God, when Christ came and he offered them the way to know God, the way to have a genuine relationship with God, they were not interested. They wanted him to exalt them over the Romans. And once he became a threat to their own rule, is when they crucified him. Like, you're, you're going to mess with my stuff, you know, I'm going to mess with you. And that's why Christ was put on the cross when he became a threat to them. They had no love for God. There was no reality in there. And Christ came to reveal that, and that is why there was the fall. That is why Israel rejected him, because there was, a, there was not the sincere desire for God. There was just profession and no reality. <clears throat> the last section we have is about Anna. And a few things about Anna 
in this passage that are notable. One, it says that Anna was a prophetess. Now, there's only four women, if I remember correctly, at least in maybe potentially the good sense being named prophetesses in the Bible. Uh, you have uh, Miriam, who was questionable if that was really a good thing in her case or not. You have Deborah, who was a great prophetess. She was uh, one of the judges of Israel and obviously did great good. Uh, you had Huldah, which was in the time of Josiah, uh, stood up and was a prophetess. And uh, then you have Anna. Why so few women that are prophetesses? Why do you have so many prophets and so few prophetesses? It is not because women were less spiritual than men. We see a lot of evidence that it was the other way around. Often it was the women that showed greater spirituality than the men. But it wasn't their job. It wasn't their responsibility to go up in front of the people and to prophesy and to publicly uh, tell people the things of God. It wasn't their responsibility. The time you see them doing it is a time when there was just no man that would do the job. So God brought a woman along. Sometimes really as a rebuke for the men of the time. Look, none of you will stand up. I found someone that will. So in a sense, Anna is here really a rebuke to the men of the time, and probably especially the religious leaders. If you think about it, here the Christ is announced in the temple, in open daylight. The priests are there. Maybe the scribes and the teacher of the law and the Pharisees. They should carry on with this ministry like, wow, the Messiah is here. We should tell everybody that comes. But no, in their eyes, he was the son of a poor couple. I say a poor couple because when Mary brought two pigeons or turtle doves instead of a lamb and a turtle dove, she revealed that she was poor. She could not afford a lamb. And they couldn't believe that this baby in the arms of this poor couple could be the Messiah. And so they didn't announce him. And God took it from them and gave it to another person. And Anna is that person. She's the one who will carry this message of the fact the Messiah was born and presented in the temple to everybody who's looking forward. It says in verse 38 that uh, in coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So she was the one. She was the one who carried the message of the Messiah to who? Everybody who came to Jerusalem looking for redemption. Who is that? Every Jew that has a mind for God would come to the temple seeking the Lord. This is where the temple, this is where God was to be revealed. So God is still faithful. He'll make sure everybody who really wants, who is seeking, will hear about the Messiah being born. This, this message will not be lost. But it's interesting that he picks this woman, Anna, to be the, the bearer of the message. So here's a woman. She's a prophetess. Uh, there's an interesting note here about about her in verse 37. It says, And this woman was a widow of about, uh, actually, starting in verse 36. Now there was one Anna, prophetess, the daughter of Panuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her, from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. We may not understand everything of what, of, of, uh, of what she did or who she was. Uh, people go back and forth about the 84 years, whether she was actually a widow for 84 years or whether she was 84 years old and a widow for some subset of that time. But we know that she was only married for seven years. For seven years she was married. In those days they got married pretty young. Let's say 18, probably before that. But uh, seven years she'd be 25. Her husband dies, okay, 
remarry. Right? That's actually the general command in the scripture. You know, you're, you're a young woman, your husband died, remarry. You know, you can still marry, you're still eligible. It's not your fault that your husband died. And yet she did it. And there's only one reason given in the scripture to not to do it, and that is to devote yourself to God. And that's clearly what she did. She decided not to remarry so that she could devote herself to the Lord. And that's what we see her doing in verse 37. She, it says she did not depart from the temple. She lived in the temple. Not, not the place where they were offering sacrifice. The temple included a court. But the point is she always wanted to be as close as possible to the Lord and where things were going on for the Lord. And it says she served God with fastings and prayers, not in day. Her, her one job, her one purpose in life was to fast and to pray. Obviously, she couldn't fast all the time. She wouldn't have made it to 84 years. But regularly, she was fasting. She was praying. She was seeking the Lord. And uh, you, you might ask, well, what was she fasting? What was she praying for? What could be so important to devote your life for? And the only answer is the salvation of God which is here really fulfilled in the Messiah being presented, which is not surprising when she, see me, she sees Simeon. And if she's been in the temple all the time, she knows everybody that's there. And she knows everybody that really has a mind for the things of God. And I have no doubt she knew about this prophecy made to Simeon. So he comes to the temple, she's going to stick pretty close to him. He lifts up a child, she's going to be right there. And she hears what he said. And a good lesson to us, being, being involved in the things of God keeps you on the spot. When something happens, you know you're part of it. But um, right, and as you expect in her happiness, she, she will now share it with everybody else. One last thought that I have, and I'll close with that. I don't know uh, how many of you heard about the Moravians. Anybody heard of the Moravians? I see some hands. It uh, would be worth your while to look into them. It's nice sometimes to look back at church history and see some of the things that happened in the past. There was a group of people uh, with some sort of history, they were called the Moravians, that were fleeing persecution in Europe at the time. If you were truly serving the Lord, often you'd be a common persecution. If you refused to believe whatever the Catholic Church taught or some other church that ruled over the land, you were in trouble. So they fled and they found a refuge in a, in a plot of land that was owned by a baron. A baron, baron. And, um, well, maybe a few hundreds of them. And it's from that group of people that most of the missionary work that happened in the 1700s came. How is it that a few hundred people scattered by a persecution ended up living in a small plot of land, land in Europe? That out of that a great movement of missionary work would come that will sweep most of the probably English-speaking world of the time. Well, there's another fact that's interesting about the Moravians, and that is when they came together and the Spirit of God first started to move in them, they started to pray, and they dedicated themselves. There were 24 men and 24 women who dedicated themselves to have continuous prayer. So I can't continue to pray all the time. I have to eat, I have to sleep. But when I stop, somebody else can take over. So there were 24 men and 24 women who covenanted together to keep a prayer going on for the Lord for 100 years. Obviously, it wasn't the same 24, 48 people. But the reason God gave them the work of missions, 
The reason God used them in such a mighty way in the world is here were people that were dedicated to God and shown by their prayer. And I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those people. And I want to be a person so devoted to God that God wants to bless me with this kind of a ministry, to be the person to go and to tell people about Christ. Don't you want to be part of the same? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this example of uh, Simeon and Anna, people that loved you, that dedicated themselves to you, and that you used in this mighty way at that time. Father, we ask that we might people might be people who would dedicate ourselves to you in a similar fashion that you could use in such a mighty way to reach others as well. For we ask in Jesus' name.